This is an ABC podcast. People who have addiction issues are withdrawing and so they are looking for help and looking for ways to lessen the impact of that on them and that's creating a lot of issues across the communities. Flooding has not only cut the supply of essential goods to the Kimberley but also illegal alcohol and drugs. That may sound like a good thing but in a region with some of the highest rates of drug addiction, support workers fear for what the sudden detox could mean. That story soon. And 20 years on, communities in eastern Victoria remember the devastating 2003 Alpine bushfires. You'll never forget it. Something like that's still clear in your mind, even though we're older and memory's not as good as it used to be, but you'll never forget it. I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide. Record-breaking floodwater in WA's north has cut off the key transport routes through the region. The ability to get food and essential supplies to the town has been severely affected, and so has the supply of illegal alcohol and drugs. Now, that may sound like a good thing, but in a region with some of the highest rates of suicide and drug and alcohol addiction, health support workers fear the sudden detox could have serious consequences. Broom reporter Tallulah Bindry has the story. The devastating Kimberley flood crisis has caused irreparable damage to key infrastructure throughout the region, with major transport routes through the town cut off. With no way in by road, the flow of essential goods into the Kimberley has ground to a halt and the illegal movement of drugs and alcohol has dried up. There are fears the crisis could have serious mental health consequences in affected communities. Mental health worker Stuart Jan works with vulnerable youth in the outback town. He's concerned residents will find other ways to feed their addiction. Drugs and alcohol play a big role in the communities. The sources that they may normally get it from may be cut off now because of the floods. In my opinion, I'd say there'd be a high rise in anxiety levels, depression, just feeling frustrated. And I'd say community members will find other ways of self-medicating themselves. That's a big concern in a region managing the fallout of a -a once-in-a-generation flood crisis. Tensions are high and residents are uncertain about their future. That does have a big impact on their lives when they get back to community and see what the damage has done. It's going to really play a toll because this is the biggest flood that they've had. The recovery from this is going to take a team effort community members going to have to work together. Denied the ability to feed their dependents on drugs and alcohol, health workers say many are struggling to cope. Kimberley Aboriginal Medical Services Mental Health Executive Manager Kristen Orazi says support services are already severely stretched. The impact really is that people are left with a shortage of services at the moment. People can't get in and out from a service perspective, let alone a home perspective and people are are struggling. So people who have addiction issues are withdrawing and so they are looking for help and looking for ways to lessen the impact of that on them and that's creating a lot of issues across the communities, across Derby, across Fitzroy, across Broome. Reducing drug and alcohol use in the region is a long-term aim. Fitzroy Crossing implemented alcohol restrictions during 2007 that only allow for mid-strength alcohol to be sold takeaway. Ms Orazi warns the sudden and unplanned detox could cause issues for people battling addiction. It's not simple because we know that prohibition in and of itself doesn't work. People use alcohol and other drugs because essentially they're self-medicating other issues, right? People have distresses, trauma from in their lives, 
and that's been their way of coping with that. So I think you can't just restrict or ban alcohol and other drugs without having complementary services for those people to then manage the issues that have resulted in them misusing alcohol and other drugs in the first place. Mental health issues are an ongoing obstacle in the region, which is known to have one of the highest suicide rates in the country. Fitzroy Crossing local and radio broadcaster Natalie Davey stepped in to support her town during the disaster. Floodwater swept through her home on the banks of the Fitzroy River. Ms Davey says mental health services need to prepare for the worst during a time when anxiety is at its peak. Depends on how they cope when under stress. If someone is in a hyper-stress state, are they going to hurt themselves, hurt others? What negative effects could happen to that person and their community without proper help? I think apart from emergency services and any of these kind of responses, mental health needs to be one of those primary needs for people going through all of that. She says the emergency response needs to include adequate mental health awareness and facilities for those experiencing stress and anxiety. There's not just floodwaters that have come up or down. It is a very long road ahead, months and years, to be able to function or be able to process everything that's happened to everyone. And I think that is a very important part of the process in emergency response. The state government says support services, including telehealth, are still available despite the limits of current conditions. But with infrastructural repairs likely months or years away, it's not clear whether current mental health services will be able to deliver the urgent support these people need. That's Broome reporter Tallulah Bindry there. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company on this Wednesday. Like many regional coastal areas around the country, the New South Wales South Coast has undergone some significant changes in the last few years, with COVID lockdowns and working from home arrangements leading city dwellers to look for a sea change. The Shoalhaven has become a hotspot for people making the move, but it has brought some challenges with it. A reporter, Stefan Postuma, took a trip to the Shoalhaven to see how the South Coast stacked up as a sea change destination and to see how the region and existing residents are coping with the change. I came from a rural place in Ireland and I couldn't wait to sort of pack my bags and move to the city. And then, you know, I'm hitting my late 30s and I'm really over the traffic and the noise and the tiny apartments that we were living in. So I started dreaming about the coastal lifestyle and, you know, just being outdoors more, going to the beach, all of that sort of stuff. It became much more acceptable to work from home. And we started to think, wait a minute, if we can, you know, work remotely, we don't need to be in Sydney anymore. And maybe we can live somewhere and afford to buy a place um, somewhere else. Jason Cullen and Tansiri Han Watanachai are an expat couple that lived in Sydney for a number of years but made the sea change to Jervis Bay during the pandemic. I was born in Bangkok, so it's a big city. And then moved to Sydney, it's the same thing. City, Jervis Bay has been like our holiday destination for all along. And so I just said to Jason, why don't we try to live there for a year or something, see how it goes, if we like it. And it worked out well. Has there been any locals that have at all not been welcoming to you guys sydney siders coming and buying property and and things like that when other people that have grown up in the region might be struggling to rent or struggling to buy no not no, really not, and not at all i find that most people in in at least 
the suburbs around here have actually moved here themselves. Even if it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, they've moved from different parts of Australia. Yeah, people have been... Yeah. Been really nice, yeah. really kind. Do you ever see yourselves moving back to a big city? I couldn't do a big city. I can't do it anymore. Uh, like, it just drained me. Yeah. yeah, but South Coast New South Wales is, you know, it's a pretty special place. First thing you notice is the space. We're lucky enough to be on a decent-sized block here, whereas we were apartment living in Adelaide for the last six years. Five-minute commute to work. It's just life-changing. Being able to go for a surf before work. Life's easy and good. No complaints at all. Fiona Fagan and Richard Sykes, along with their son Henry, made the sea change to Mollymook, bringing their skills as a solicitor and a doctor to a region in dire need of these kinds of professionals. Everywhere I interviewed basically said you'll have a choice of where you can work. We're short of doctors here. Despite the job opportunities and improvement in lifestyle, for Richard and Fiona, the move to the Shoalhaven has also come with its challenges. So I'm actually seven months pregnant and about to give birth and one of the problems here is you can't give birth in Milton Ulladulla so I will have to travel to Nara to have my baby. The other thing we're also worried about is um, high schools. There's only one high school in the region and we just don't know how well our children will manage there. Do you feel like you've been welcomed into the Shoalhaven community? I find that the locals are also so friendly um, and really appreciative of the fact that we are bringing new skill sets to the area. I suppose people complain about that there's more traffic now and that the place has changed, but people are excited about the new hospitality venues and new events and that there's a new life in the community. I know on the local Facebook pages, the community pages, there's a real sentiment that a lot of the sea changes have been taking the rentals away from local people and there's a real issue with rentals people living in cabins and caravan parks so i understand why some people would not be so welcoming the influx of new residents to the shoalhaven has led to an array of changes for long-time locals who moved to the region for the affordability the space and the lifestyle russell firth moved to huskisson from mudgee in 1997 our kids could not afford to buy a property or even rent a property at the moment in the areas they grew up in the other thing is there's always a quiet time, but now there's not a quiet time. The parks are all full, the beaches are all full, basically all the time. So there's a lot less open space now, or quiet places where you can get away from it all. People like business owners, are they seeing this as a positive? Most of them are doing very well out of the population. And of course, we are too, in that there's more cafes, there's more breweries. Lots of businesses down here shut for various days simply because they can't get anyone to work here. I guess that goes back to where these people are going to live. The brewer that came down from Sydney to work there got the last house in Vincennia. was available for rent. It's tough. With the influx of sea changes, coupled with the lack of housing services and labour, the Shoalhaven region is undoubtedly facing some challenges. Shoalhaven Mayor and New South Wales Greens candidate Amanda Findlay sympathises with the concerns of the community but believes the Shoalhaven has been left behind. There's no real planning about how the infrastructure copes with that kind of growth, retail kind of catches up eventually when people go, oh, this is a worthwhile place to offer a service. But, you know, when it comes to government-driven services, we really are left behind and it is unfair. Places like the Shoalhaven have been growing for years, so having new people around is not a shock to anybody's system. People, they're not stupid. They don't want to put it at the feet of others, but they do definitely want government to sit up and take notice. Stephen, Stephen Postuma with that report from Shoalhaven on the New South Wales south coast.
You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. 20 years ago, communities in East Victoria were getting ready to defend their homes and lives as what was to become one of the state's largest bushfires took hold. On January 8th, lightning ignited 87 fires in the northeast and East Gippsland regions. Eight of these fires were unable to be contained and joined together to form the largest fire in Victoria since 1939. The fires burned for 59 days and spread to New South Wales and the ACT. Reporter Richard Crabtree travelled to Benambra and heard from people who still have vivid memories of the blaze ripping through their community. By 2003, South East Australia was dried out and ready to burn. The country had just suffered through its fourth driest year since 1900 as the millennium drought gripped Victoria and New South Wales. Ben Rankin, the incident controller with the Department of Energy, Environment and Climate Action, knew the situation was dangerous. The forest itself was just extremely dry. Every piece of fuel would light and burn. And on the 7th of January, the worst case scenario came true. Dry lightning started 87 fires in the Great Dividing Range in eastern Victoria. Fire crews were able to contain most of those fires within days, but there were eight in the remote mountainous forests of East Gippsland that were unable to be contained. Those eight fires would eventually join to become the biggest fire the state had seen since 1939, burning over 1.3 million hectares of Victorian bush over the course of 59 days. Mr Rankin says while his memory has faded in the 20 years since 2003, there's some days he'll never forget. The 26th of January was one of those. We had prepared well, but didn't really expect the fire to come with such ferocity and intensity as it did. Fuelled by hot weather and wind gusts of up to 150 kilometres per hour, the fire front moved with unprecedented ferocity toward the townships of Benambra, Omeo, Galantope and Swifts Creek in Victoria's high country. Kelvin Pendergast is a multi-generational farmer near Benambra. He was also a CFA member in 2003 and says he vividly remembers driving through paddocks on the 26th of January with smoke so thick he couldn't see the bull bar on the front of his car. I was just lucky you knew the country like the back of your hand. And I just said, well, we'll pull up and have a listen here to see whether we can hear any fire or anything. And anyway, turned the vehicle off, stepped out of the vehicle, and it was just roaring. But by the time I got back in the vehicle, the fire had that much speed up, it went straight over the top of the trees which we were parked underneath, and the fire dropped back in behind us. It certainly was scary, yeah, there was no doubt about that. Plenty of times you couldn't see the bull bar. 20 years has passed, but still pretty clear in your mind? Yeah, yeah, I know, it's something you'll, um... Sorry. Yeah, it sort of gets you. It's estimated a total of 10,000 livestock were killed in the fires, while a total of 41 homes were destroyed. Kelvin remembers distinctly the aftermath having to shoot some livestock that weren't already killed in the fire. You'll never forget it. Something like that's still clear in your mind, even though 
We're older and memory's not as good as it used to be, but you'll never forget it. John Cook was the CFA Division Commander at Benambra, leading the helm for 60 days as the fire burned. Cook is sometimes credited with saving property and lives in the area, with his local knowledge guiding firefighting efforts. Not one life was lost in 2003. But standing on the Benambra football oval 20 years later, Cook says things could have been very different. They hit over the top of those mountains there. You can still see the sticks that are up there, that's Moonscope. And uh, if it had come back after they hit to where I was standing, I wouldn't be talking to you now. But it went down the hill on the other side and blew out 312 head of cattle to nothing. Bits and pieces everywhere. So that's what the locals had to put up with. But just hope that uh, the community doesn't see it again. They can only go through so much. It was a similar story around Omeo where the fire came within touching distance, burning multiple houses. In Swifts Creek on the 30th of January, Ben Rankin remembers a sudden shift in the wind direction, saving the town of 400 people. At about 5.30 I noticed a bit of a break in the wind, otherwise we'd have had um, fire right into, into the township of Swifts Creek as well, mm-hmm. and probably significant losses if that had have occurred. So. So those days stick in my memory very much. And while there were more dangerous days across the next month and a half, rain falling in late February, the first all year, helped crews get on top of the fire. It was finally declared under control by the 7th of March. But the aftermath of the fire had its own brutal challenges. Len Jeffs was a CFA Deputy Incident Controller in Benambra and also the owner of the town's only general store. We'd have people coming in absolutely shattered, like they didn't know what to do, where to go. To see some of them people that have lost cattle and lost their livelihood, to see a 70-year-old man come in and break down in tears, tough as old boots, doesn't matter who you are, it, it brings a tear to your eye to see that happen. Dealing with the lasting trauma is part of why Trudy Anderson organised a get-together on the 20th anniversary of the fires last weekend. Trudy runs the local Benambra neighbourhood house and she was also there in 2003, helping defend her parents' Benambra property during the fire. Tonight we've seen uh, a lot of uh, friends catch up which haven't caught up and have that conversation, which sometimes people didn't have the time to have 20 years ago because after the fires we were so busy with the recovery space. Also back then they didn't want to share their feelings because everyone was going through it and there was no time to overthink what you'd been through. Tonight we've had a great attendance and people have really enjoyed their evening coming together, sharing some stories and having a a few laughs as well as a few tears. That's Trudy Anderson ending that report from Richard Crabtree in Benambra. And finally here on Australia Wide, at this time of year, people are heading to beaches right around the country to unwind and relax. But when Gold Coast resident Kaz Preston heads to the beach, she gets busy. Kaz is the person many call when they've lost a valuable or precious item. She's a metal detectorist and has been pulled out in a dangerous rip and found herself neck deep in a bull shark infested canal while working to reunite owners with their lost treasures. But she told Kirsten Webster it's all worth it. I recover lost jewellery for people, um, rings, phones, keys, watches, anything that's of precious value that they've lost. 
I'm able to find it with my detector. You could be sent on some wild goose chases, couldn't you? Yes, I have. Um, some of the hardest ones to find are tiny little uh, hearing aids because they have the most minute wires and they give a very tiny scratchy tone and, and they can take a long time to recover. This is obviously a passion of yours, isn't it? It is. It's a hobby as well. I love to get things back to people. The reward that you get from giving back a wedding ring that might have belonged to somebody's father is just priceless and you know people are ecstatic they can't believe they've got it back what is the process if someone says okay i ring you up kaz i've lost a ring and it's really important to me how do you go about finding it we have vast beaches on the gold coast once they leave the location um, it's a problem if they ring me straight away i can tell them to stay put take some photos of the area if you have to leave mark the area out with your foot so you've got a square where you think it is so that we know the rough area it can take sometimes days for me to locate an item um, i always go back and just keep trying and trying sometimes we're not successful we're human and you know if it's wild surf that's really dangerous and it can be really hard to to get a ring back that's been lost out in the surf zone yeah, so we're not talking you just stay on the soft sandy beaches. You're actually going out into the water as well. Yes, done many water recoveries. It's people forget their fingers shrink in the water and their jewellery will come off so easy. Necklaces and chains, if you happen to get dumped by the surf, will come off um, and they can be difficult to find. You had recently a story or a, a job in a canal can we say a shark infested canal <laughs> what was that job uh, that was a 40 year old wedding ring that had come off christmas day we thought it was in you know, ankle deep water but it ended up being neck deep um, almost to my chin to try and recover it and normally a canal is not something that any recovery artist will go to because it is dangerous um, and they do drop off suddenly and this particular ring was right on the drop off so I was on tippy toes trying to reach it but I got it so it made the happy very very happy family. How satisfying is it for you to actually be able to hand that ring over? It's the best I've seen their reactions they are just ecstatic and they're, they're jumping around and, and you know and they ask can I hug you I'm like yeah sure you know it's great it's the best feeling. It's not always a happy story as to when you're called, is it? Sometimes there's been an argument and in the heat of the moment, the ring gets thrown. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yes, that can happen. I had one that was um, the place on the canals. They'd had a big fight. The ring was worth $20,000 and she thrown at him and he threw it and it landed within two inches of going into the canal when I finally found it. I had to go through terraced gardens and uh, hedges and everything trying to find this thing and, and here it was just sitting there right near the canal so oh. that, was, that was lucky and they, they made up after that <laughs> oh, I hope so and I hope you got a big hug for it I too yeah. and it is quite a dangerous activity for you we've talked about you having to go into a canal where you know there are sharks there and also the surf can be a dangerous place. It can. Um, there's a lot of current, so you're battling against the current, the wave action, um, there's dips in the sand. The sand can be quite boggy. Um, I've been caught in a rip um, and I lost a very expensive piece of equipment, was either let that go or drown, so uh, there was nothing I can do. Um, I'm very wary about going out there because even you can get hurt as well. Um, yeah, it can be quite dangerous.
We see a lot of detectors on the beach, especially New Year's Day, which is obviously one of the busiest days for metal detectors on the Gold Coast. It's not always the people that are trying to recover and give back, though, are they? You, you have a bit of a message about not putting exact locations. Yeah, exactly. I'm, um, I ask people not to put the exact location because, unfortunately, you will uh, invite thieves. And there are some people that, if they find a gold ring, it's just scrap gold to them. It doesn't have that beautiful sentimental value that it does to me and, and other respectable people. So don't ever put the exact location. Just say, okay, it was lost at Broadbeach, but don't say where. Um, and that way it's easy for me, you know, to meet you there and let's go and get it. Um, but once the location's up, it's, it's really open for anybody, unfortunately. Do you have a favourite find? Uh, it'd be a love token from World War II and it's inscribed to Lucy Love Len, Papua New Guinea, 1947. Now it was found in the Kyogle, uh, Rukenvale area and I have been trying to track the family down. I'd love to return it. It's jade on one side, it's a love heart, silver on the back and it's engraved. So I have a few people have reached out to me and, and they're doing some research so it'd be wonderful to return that. Wouldn't that be amazing for that to be returned? That's metal detectorist Kaz Preston speaking there to Kirsten Webster on the Gold Coast. And that is Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Alex Hyman. I'll be back again with you tomorrow night. Hope you can join me then. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.